Welcome to Aim High, Cranberry Kingswood's alumni podcast. In this podcast, you'll hear from the voices of students, alumni, staff, and faculty who embody the values of the Cranberry community. This episode is brought to you by alumni.fm, a CK alum podcast production company with a mission to connect people through stories. Hey, welcome to the Aim High podcast, CK's alumni podcast. With me today is Michael St. Germain, class of 2010. He is currently Google and he's done a lot of cool stuff before Google. Michael, I'm going to hand it over to you. Give a quick intro. Yeah, for sure. Great to be here, Robert. Excited to support Cranbrook. I have been both in the Army Reserve as an Army aviator flying H-60 Blackhawks and C-12 Hurons, as well as working for Google ever since graduating college. Recently moved back to Detroit during COVID and excited to be back in the neighborhood. Starting with Google, what do you currently do there? Sure. So at Google, I'm currently a product business development manager focused on Android automotive. I focus specifically on navigation and maps. We work to sell automakers our navigation system so that it's natively in the interface of the vehicle rather than you needing to plug in your phone or using some other navigation system. All right. And is that like an area within Google that you chose to go into or it kind of happened? Yeah, I've always been super excited by the car industry. Growing up outside Detroit, my family had always worked for Ford for almost four generations, I think. So the car industry is kind of in my blood, I should say. And I think just building partnerships between leading edge technology companies like Google and what I might call legacy industries or older industries where there's a lot of opportunity to use technology that's being developed in Silicon Valley and bringing it to other parts of the economy is really exciting. And so I thought this opportunity to bring Google's technology around maps to vehicles is a really great opportunity to kind of advance my career within Google, but also be able to return home and join join the economy back here in Michigan. Yeah. What made you want to come back to Michigan? Great lakes, great times. Uh, no, I... I I just really love the quality of life here. I think it's nice being able to afford a home. My fiance and I were living in a one bedroom in New York before this, and there was no real pathway to ownership of any standalone home, possibly apartment in a few years from now. But being able to move back to Michigan and just be able to settle down and get a house and be able to enjoy the outdoors and just higher quality of life means a lot. I think it's not always about the career. And so figuring out how to balance your needs for a good career with quality of life and a future for yourself and your kids or possible kids one day is important. How did you decide on this balance? Like, how'd you go about it? That's a good question. I think one thing that the Army's really taught me is that having to go away and be away from your family for long periods of time I've never deployed, but I've had to you know, be away for long periods of time for training or other activities. And it makes you really value that time, I think, more. And so figuring out how you can both develop a career where you can make enough money to be self-sufficient and provide for your family, but also be able to spend the time with the people that you care about, like my family being here in Michigan or with be able to explore your hobbies. Like I really enjoy flying on the civilian side. 
And so being able to go to the Troy airport or go to the Pontiac airport and rent a plane is just an exciting opportunity for me or play golf or spend time on the lake. And those are accessible in Michigan, whereas in New York or San Francisco or some of these Bay cities, those those moments and those experiences that you can share with the people that you know and love, you can do much easier in a place like Michigan and you can't do it in New York or San Francisco. During your time in the Army Reserve, how did your perception of time shift? When did you actually notice that you were looking at time differently? I think... There was a few probably distinct moments. I went through Army Survival School, which is, as you might imagine, not the most enjoyable thing you'll go through. And so I think there was times during that experience where you're really deprived of creature comforts. And so I think that was a big moment. Finishing flight school and going through some of the emergency procedures in an airplane, people in a civilian job will often say, oh, this is a there's a deadline or this is a fire drill or this is you know the end of the world. Whereas like none of those things are even close to actual reality. And once you've been in a helicopter and you've simulated an engine failure or you've had to land the aircraft without power and a, or you've known folks who have passed away, I think you just get a bit more perspective on life. And so having been to the military Younger in life, I think people naturally accrue this kind of mindset throughout life as their own friends pass away or through their own lived experiences. But I think in the military, it really accelerates that because you're forced to go through survival school or emergency procedures or listen to life and death scenarios for training you know, when you're 22 or 25. And so that, I think led to kind of a, a big shift in, in at least how I think about life as a opportunity to collect as many experiences and share as many moments with those you love. And so that's how I've reoriented my career. If you can think back a little bit when you're 22, 25 and going through these emergency situations, like what's running through your head? Probably expletives I should not say on the podcast, but I think you just start thinking about what is this all for? Why am I willing to be in an aircraft that could catch on fire, have an engine failure, and not only kill me, but everyone on board? Why am I going through the survival course and losing 20 pounds? <laughs> Why am I you know, doing any of these things that like are naturally very uncomfortable? And it's because you're doing it for people that you know and love and for a cause which you know and believe in. And... Without that, everything else is meaningless. And so at the end of the day, like most people's civilian jobs are really just how do you pay the bills? But why are you paying the bills? Like what are you trying to get out of working nine to five or in I think our cases much longer than that, anywhere from 60 to 80 hours a week. And it's because you want to be able to have experiences with those you know and love and, and the places that you know and love. And so I think it really just helps ground grounds you like is there's a good book out now and I'll stop in a second, but called Comfort Crisis. I think it's really easy nowadays to just get very comfortable. But people, once you get too comfortable, you begin taking it for granted. And so I think being uncomfortable, and that's part of the reason I enjoy continuing to do the Army is it continues to ground me and give me perspective. My commitment's almost up, but I enjoy being able to continue doing it because it it just exposes me to situations that give me new perspective. And it's important to make yourself uncomfortable, whether it's 
something as simple as going to the gym and lifting heavy things and you hate it or <laughs> running half marathon or marathon or doing some form of extreme volunteering like the military or doing a missionary trip, whatever that is, I think it's important to just like really help keep perspective. And honestly, my goal is also avoiding as much as possible a, a midlife crisis because I think so many, it almost became a trope in our parents' generation where people would experience a midlife crisis because they work so hard and they forgot about why they were working so hard. And so my pursuit is really figuring out why I'm working so hard and what is it all for? When was the last time you got too comfortable? That's a good question. Probably I had been in Alabama for 18 months and I felt like that was enough for the army uh, during flight school. I generally try to not, you know, if you leave early from something, let's say you move away from something early, you only remember the good times. You never got bored. And so if I think I've been doing that basically ever since junior year of college when I entered a BAMA program and moved to Italy for a year. I don't think I've been anywhere for more than two years at a time, two or three years. And it's been great. I've you know been very blessed to been able to stay in touch with friends who I've made everywhere I've moved. And I definitely don't regret any of the moves or staying busy. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's interesting. So yeah, moving to a lot of different places, right? Always on the move. Where would you say is home for you? You know, one funny thing about home is you're not, you're never home somewhere until you leave. <laughs> but I do think it's Michigan. I think Michigan will always be home. Part of it's Cranbrook. Part of it's being able to know that two of my groomsmen were fellow boarders at, at Cranbrook. I, my fiance even remarks, you know, every person she's met from Cranbrook, she just thinks is incredible and wants to send her kids there as a result. She hasn't met a Cranbrook grad she, she doesn't like. And so I really do think it's Michigan. Well, tell me a little bit about your boarding experience. What really sticks out to you? Yeah, I did the full four years as a boarder. I know a lot of boarders come in sophomore and junior year, but I was the full four years. I do think the first year is actually the hardest. I guess that shouldn't be too much of a surprise, but the moving in somewhere at age 14, for some people, I think even age 13, is quite young. And to be expected to you know, do your own laundry, do study hall, all those things by yourself when you've been doing it at home your whole life is pretty wild. I think it's impacted me in a lot of ways. You know, I, I didn't really have a plan for that. And so ever since then, I really feel like I've become a big planner because it was so jarring to really get adjusted that first year. And I think one of the things that's tricky is I actually got adopted, I would say, by a bunch of upperclassmen boarders through different clubs like JSA or TARS or I think Model UN and or, or JVB soccer. And so, but they go on and move on. They also have a car typically and they can go off campus. So it was tricky, but I come sophomore year and junior year and senior year, like I felt like I just looked back. I looked forward to going back even more every year because of more friends. And at that point, you start to know more people. And then being involved in RHC and some of the, and being an RA and being able to not only have people you can mentor, but also meet new people. What's funny is my two best friends from Cranbrook didn't start until sophomore and junior year. So it's definitely, it was always exciting to see who you're going to meet. 
And yeah, so I think I really liked, really have fond memories of the boarding experience, but I think the first year is definitely tough. Yeah. Well, hey, I mean, during your time at Cranbrook, you had a chance to mention some people who were during your time there. Yeah, for sure. So I think some of them are still there. So I guess on the adult side or the faculty and staff, Dr. Dostert had just become house advisor at Stevens, as well as I think Dr. Greenspan had moved in. Dr. Welch, who was, I think, academic advising at the time, but he bounced around to a few roles, were big role models for sure. I think as time moved on, I spent a lot more time on the Crane Clarion uh, newspaper. It's nice that it's based in the <laughs> Boy Storm's basement, I guess. Yeah, still there, still printing papers. Dr. Watson, or Mr. Watson, I really respected his, um, even though we didn't always agree politically, he was always up for a debate and willing to discuss and was interested academically in an idea, which I, I felt like I learned a lot from. I was also growing older, like in junior and senior year, I feel like Dr. Cowley had a, a very big presence in the boys' dorms. He was always there, always willing to help people with history, but also engage in the latest political musings of the day. And so there's a lot of fond memories. I even remember actually Mr. Julicher tried, I tried taking Russian from Mr. Julicher for a few months when he was during study hall. So that was cool. But yeah, lots, lots of good memories. Sounds like a lot of mentors, a lot to learn from. And you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of things that you took away from Cranberry throughout your life after graduating. Uh, what were some of those things? What are some of those lessons? Definitely, for sure. I think self-sufficiency was huge. And always really having a plan after the drawing experience of not knowing what it's like jump, jumping feet first into boarding school and no one in my family had boarded before or anything was a big experience. So I definitely, I think, became a planner as a result of Cranbrook. Also became like very social and very reliant on friends. You know, if when you can't see your family all the time and the people you grew up with, you learn the importance of really having good, strong friendships and what, how do you qualify a good, strong friendship? When you're a bunch of teenage boys, you, you naturally begin to make friends with each other because you're all moored on an island that's foreign to almost everyone. And so it's a big bonding experience for a lot of people. And I think I learned a lot about friendship and the importance of friendship through relying on each other when you guys, when you had no one else to rely on except your friends. So I think that was a, probably my biggest takeaway from the boys' dorms. But one thing also I think that reflects some military experiences, you know, everyone would get better and better at moving into their room every year when you're a boarder. And so there's a military saying, always improve your foxhole. I think people throughout the years, especially the seniors, one of the reasons people admired the senior dorm so much is that they really knew uh, how to put the room together right and make sure they have the right furniture and the right spacing and everything. I figured out you move in way, way faster. You have all the cool gear set up already, but you have it planned. Let me ask you this. So what was your senior, room, uh, senior dorm room like? So I had an RA room with a bay window, which was nice key. You have that extra few feet of space. And when you're talking about 10 feet total, having two to three feet more is 30% growth. <laughs> I think I had a bunk because I liked putting a couch underneath it and having a couch in like a more social area 
in the dorm was key because he didn't always want to sit in the common area where the house advisors were hanging out and snooping on boarders. And so that was always important. I think it was funny. I did have a desktop, it seems like ages ago. You know, it was the easiest way to be able to watch movies if you had a big desktop monitor as well. And so that was key. I think that's all I can remember. It seems like forever ago. Well, actually, so you know, I, I think so I was bored too. A lot of the things you mentioned carried, carried over. Exact same setup. <laughs> yeah. And yes, it's very key to have a big bond in your room. Get together, you know, watch a movie, play some video games, all that. Yeah, video games too. So I'm wondering... Was there anything during your Cranberry experience that kind of encouraged you to go into ROTC, to go into the Army Reserve? Yeah, for sure. I think there's honestly quite a few things through either residence hall council, student council, or being class president. We had quite a few service activities. I remember we organized a few walks downtown Birmingham. There's always the, I think two years above me, Miles Levin passed away. And so he was class of 2008, I want to say. And that was a big moment for the school to come together. And I saw just how important a lot of that was for fostering a community and the importance of kind of paying it forward while you can. I think, you know, additionally, like I was in the Boy Scouts and I continued to do Boy Scout stuff throughout Cranbrook, or at least the first two years of Cranbrook. So I think some combination of service through Cranbrook and Boy Scouts really led me to want to join the military and continue to serve my country. I think, for example, one of my mentors in high school, Ben Mizra, class of 08, went to the Air Force Academy. He was in JSA, and I think the Crane Clarion with me. Uh, And then Mary Allison, his sister, who's my year, also did Air Force Academy, looked up to them as role models and I don't know. You only live once. <laughs> and so uh, being able to serve in the military once in your life, I think, is something I was you know, really interested in. So you mentioned this, the term like extreme volunteering. What does that mean to you? Like, how do you define that? You know, to me, when you're a reservist in the military, the military doesn't exactly pay well. They don't even reimburse you for all the flights and whatnot you take to go show up to duty, even though you're legally obligated to show up to duty. So you don't exactly come away financially on top from what you're doing. But you know, to get where I am in the military, it's been now four years of ROTC and then seven years after ROTC. I mean, that's 11 years of work to just become a captain and fly helicopters and planes. And like, I don't think a lot of people think in terms of decades, but unfortunately for a lot of military jobs, you almost have to. Your service commitment's a minimum four years in most cases. And so if you sign up when you're 18, you're talking at least half a decade of your life you're committing, and that's just ROTC. And if you finish ROTC and they pay for all your school, that's another four to eight years, so almost minimum a full decade of service. And so I think it's extreme because it takes up a lot of time. You basically do it for free, which makes it volunteering. And you have to commit large amounts of duration of time, not just like on any given month, it's, you know, three or four days or maybe even a week, but it's also five to 10 years of that. So it's quite a big commitment. Do you still find yourself thinking in decades now? I actually do. I try to think at least five years out, but have a good idea on what 
2032 might look like. What does it look like? I think there's a good chance I move away from Michigan before 2032, but I definitely like to move back around 2032. So I think there could be a move in there somewhere. I'm hoping I have a kid or two. Yeah, probably two. I mean, it's 10 years. <laughs> I think there's a good chance. I The biggest unknown for me right now is whether or not I stay in the military. I don't know if I will at that point because I think my priorities might shift once I have kids. But I know that I'd like to be in a public partnerships type role. So similar to what I'm doing now, but more probably focused on the public sector and helping bring advancing technology from Silicon Valley to federal, state, or local governments. I think those are kind of the big pillars, but you know, I don't, I don't want to fill in too much now because you don't know how much things could change. So those are the general driving goals. Yeah. Say in 10 years, you do choose to leave the military. What would you do in place of that? Maybe be a peewee baseball coach. I'm not really sure. I think it'll depend on how old our kids are at the time and what my fiance then wife's career will, will be because I think it's also important to balance the career, your personal career aspirations with that of your partner. And so making sure that her career goals are being met and if I need to pick up a disproportionate share of work at home using the military time left over. I think I am prepared to do that. And I think it's important to do those things. Peewee coach is like a different type of extreme volunteering. Yeah. I heard coaches and referees these days are getting punched though. So it might be extreme. It's good you got that military training. Right. They won't know. Yeah. Well, so you think you're thinking decades. What it sounds like is a lot of what you choose to do is to always be growing right in an uncomfortable spot, not getting too comfortable. And part of the motivation is is avoiding a midlife crisis. I'm, I'm wondering, because yes, people in midlife crisis at different points in their life, I think when you leave college, there's a little crisis there. Right. Well, too. Probably when we left, left, left high school, there's a little bit of a crisis there too. What's your advice for people going through a crisis? Yeah, no, I think, it, and as you were asking me the question, I began to think about what did Cranbrook do to help prepare me for this? Honestly, having to have a new dorm and make new friends every year and have new neighbors every year when you're 14 through 18 years old, you become much more comfortable with change. And so I think, you know, one big thing is the meta point is like become comfortable with change. Things change and it's okay and it's going to be okay. But the important thing to do anytime when things change is really hunt the good stuff. They say it a lot in the military, or a bigger saying in the military is, don't sweat the small stuff, all stuff, small stuff. Obviously, there's probably more expletives in the military version, but the you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days, but a lot of times your the things that make something a bad day aren't really as bad in hindsight. And so what you should do is hunt the good stuff and find things that good that are happening and build around that. And I think the rest will follow. Is hunt the good stuff a pretty common saying? It is in the army or at least army aviation. I'm not sure if it is elsewhere, actually. I mean, that's interesting. I've never heard of that before. And actually, I, I'm here, please dive a little deeper into the dose with the small stuff. Yeah, I mean, so when you're learning to fly a helicopter, it's not easy. They just give you the controls and they're like, oh, let's see what you can do. Like first day, you've never been in a simulator before. All the controls are counterintuitive and you make a lot of mistakes. You make multiple mistakes every day 
for multiple days in a row. <laughs> like hundreds of days of just mistakes. Nothing but mistakes. Oh, your landing wasn't smooth. Oh, you forgot the step in the emergency procedure. Oh, forgot the oil pressure limit or the tail rotor limit or the forward speed limit. Or there's just so many things you have to know and be able to recite in, in a lot of cases verbatim. And it's just too much at once and you mess up. And so when you mess up, you have to find ways to get over it because like you, you know, might get a bad grade or you basically, you get bad grades every day, but there's like degrees of bad grades. And then a week or so before graduation, your grades are like passing. That's by design, but it also makes you comfortable under stress. And if you've, you know, no one likes the feeling of constantly failing. No one likes and people get stressed out by constantly failing. And so becoming comfortable with that and remembering the things that went well today are super important. And so a combination of hunting the good stuff and not sweating the small stuff is really key in those cases where you're trying to become a, a new or better person. Knowing that, do you, like today, do you ever fear failure? Constantly. I think anyone who says that they don't feel failure is probably lying to themselves. I think the key, though, is that reminding yourself that if and when you fail, which everyone will, you have a track record of overcoming it. So in some ways, failing more times makes you more confident about going through failure, if that makes sense. But in order to get that comfort, you have to fail a lot. And so I think... A lot of people just try to avoid it, but ultimately, if you can become better at failing by failing more often, you become less stressed about it. And so that to me is at least something that I've found useful so far. Well, you don't go looking to fail. <laughs> it's just... No, you know, yeah. You know what to do when you fail. If you fail, you hunt the good stuff. <laughs> you know, it's like you're really looking at the positive or, or the learning moments and you're always Rowing, yeah. I mean, was there ever uh, a point where you let yourself linger too long in failure? I think I've been on a team where I feel like I probably should have left the team earlier, but I was hoping that I could salvage the situation. And I think that knowing, looking back, I probably should have just left earlier, but I think it was one of these things where I really didn't want to because I felt that if I just do this one thing, the team will be better or the team will change or the priorities of the team will get righted and they never were. And so I think you know, time is perhaps one of the trickiest components to manage with failure. It's how long can you keep failing before you just cut something off or try something totally different? And when you have to call the failure, it's quite tricky. And so I think there's definitely cases where like, or that's kind of a case where I feel like I would saw that happening. You've been working at Google since graduating. Do you see yourself leaving at some point? No, I never closed the door on an interview, but I, Google has been great to me in many ways. I met my fiance at Google. I met some of my best friends at Google. Google's allowed me to continually grow and change. I've done three different types of marketing on three different teams. I'm now in business development on a different product than any of the marketing teams. I've lived in three locations. I've traveled to, I think, 30-some offices, probably 10-plus countries for work. And I think it's helped me achieve 
my goal of being able to share experiences with those I love and be able to see the world. And so there's definitely no immediate plan to leave. I think as long as Google continues to help me grow, allows me to learn and have new experiences, I don't see a reason to leave. But I think if there were a reason to leave, it would be around what I talked about in the five or 10 year plan, which is, is there an opportunity to focus more on public-private partnerships and really bringing the best of Silicon Valley or a tech company to the public sector and, and be able to continue my service to my community or a community in the world in a new way. And I think that's also would allow me an off-ramp from the military and extreme volunteering in terms of aligning my uh, goals there. All right, one more question on my mind. So on the topic of planning, who should I plan to have next on this podcast? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think there's a few great people. I think there could be good opportunities to, one, bring back a retired faculty member. I think a lot of alumni would find that exciting. And perhaps the current, if there's any current student listeners, I think they, they would be interested to hear what we talk about when we say Dr. Cowie or Mr. Watson. I think on the student side, one theme I think which is interesting and I feel like is prevalent at Cranbrook is people who transition to family-run businesses. I think there's a big community of that in Michigan, maybe because of the auto sector and automotive supply base, but I feel like a lot of people transition from, you know, they go to Cranbrook, then they go to college, and then they come back to run their parents' company. And so Ross Finney is someone from my class who comes to mind who would be great at that too. So there's definitely, uh, I think, two interesting themes. I'm trying to think of things that would be you know, really interesting to both current students and alumni. Those are fantastic recommendations. I think the big theme here is, right, is planning. But planning far advanced is five years, 10 years. Yeah, and you know, the thing that's, I think General Eisenhower once said it, plans are useless, planning is critical, something along those lines. And so it's the act of planning and prioritizing what's important and making the plan that's more important than the actual final outcome. Like you could totally throw it away. No plan survives first contact. That's a uh, Murphy's Law, essentially, for the, for the Army. But yeah, I definitely think that's true. You know, I think the act of planning is what's important. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate having you on. Of course. Thanks for having me. This has been Aim High, Kramer Kingswood's alumni podcast. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate if you could take a few seconds to subscribe wherever you listen and leave us a five-star review. This helps a lot in getting the word out and making the podcast easier to find. For any feedback or guest requests, please send an email to robert at alumni.fm. Thank you so much for listening and catch you soon.